arrived at the point where we will begin our study of the Gospel of Mark. How do you write a story about Jesus? The greatest person who's ever lived, and of course he still lives. How do you write a story about Jesus, the one on whom all of history hinges and and that means whether you're a christian or not i don't know if you realize this but up until just recently we marked history with certain numbers of years which were followed by bc or ad that only went away just a few years ago when we got really smart and and many realized you know we're not real sure about jesus how how smart we get as we progress right How do you write a story about the life of Jesus? Well, Mark did that, and it's actually quite short when you consider who Jesus is. Uh, John, in his account, says near the end that uh, he's just written a, a few of the things about Jesus so that those who hope in him might have eternal life. But he says that if everything about Jesus were to be written... Not even the whole world could contain all the books. So Mark, nor John, wrote of everything that Jesus did. It would be impossible. But they did write an account, along with Matthew and Luke, of the life of Jesus the Christ, the Son of Man, the Son of God, All of history had been pointing to this moment that Mark records for us. It had finally arrived. Jesus had come. And so Mark writes this story for the next several weeks and months, and I don't know how long it will be, but it will probably take us a little time to work our way through this gospel. But we're going to do that. I've never gone through Mark verse by verse. I've written uh, papers on a lot of the passages for school. I've uh, preached on different passages in Mark. I've read through it many, many times, but I've never gone through it uh, systematically verse by verse. And so we're going to do that, and it'll take us a little bit of time, but I think that we're going to learn a lot. I think that we'll be greatly encouraged, we'll be challenged by God's Word, and I pray that much fruit and much growth and much transformation will take place here in our our church but what do we need to know to get ready for this well i want us to think about that as we begin here in our study of mark's gospel so uh, to help us uh, make the preparations needed for this journey i've got three questions that I want to present, and we'll try to answer these. Now, as we go through this gospel, we're going to ask a lot of questions along the way and hopefully find a lot of answers. But today, to just help us with uh, sort of an outline, I want to just give you three questions to focus on. And the first is this. Who was Mark? Who was Mark? I think that's a good question to begin with. Uh, After all, we're studying a book that was written by someone named Mark. Uh, This account is the shortest of the four Gospels, and uh, because of that and because of what Mark says, for a long, long time in 
uh, <clears throat> in the academy, Mark was kind of put on a lower tier. A lot of the really smart people that taught at the universities and seminaries thought that Mark borrowed all his information from Matthew and Luke. And uh, so he was just kind of looked at as a copycat. And so there wasn't really a lot of attention given to Mark. This all began to change in the middle of the 20th century with the <clears throat> demise, I guess we could say, of, of liberalism and the critical school, uh, and also with the revival of the doctrines of divine inspiration and infallibility and the authority and inerrancy of the Bible, suddenly many New Testament scholars began to realize that Mark was actually a, a wonderful book that deserved its own intense study. And so you and I are now the beneficiaries of many uh, books, commentaries, articles, papers that have been written devoted to the study of Mark. But what can we say about the author? Well, in our Bibles, the title of this account is The Gospel According to Mark, or maybe your Bible just says Mark. Uh, what do we know about Mark? Well, uh, there's not a lot in Scripture about this person, but there are a few references to him. Uh, for instance, in Acts chapter 12, uh, you may remember this story, but uh, the apostle Peter has been thrown into prison, and uh, they do not want Peter to get away. He is chained to two guards. <laughs> and in the middle of the night, an angel comes and wakes P Peter up, and his chains fall up off, and, and, and he gets up, and they leads him out to prison. If you remember, the doors just kind of open on their own, and Peter is kind of he thinks he's in a trance. He's seeing a vision. But when he realizes that God has come and rescued him, he goes to the house. It says in Acts 12, 12, uh, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And you probably remember the story. Peter's outside knocking on the door. He wants to come in. Uh, and a young lady named Rhoda hears him, and she goes back and says, Hey, Peter's out there. He wants to come in. No, you're crazy. Peter's in prison. He's chained up. He can't get out. And so uh, they, they eventually let him in. But this happens uh, at the house of uh, a lady named Mary, who was Mark's mother. Uh, later, <clears throat> we find him at, at the end of Acts 12, and then as we're going into Acts 13, where he accompanied Paul uh, and Barnabas on their first missionary journey uh, but for some reason and the text doesn't say there uh, it tells us in Acts 13 that Mark or John Mark as he's sometimes referred to returned to Jerusalem we later find out that when Paul and Barnabas came back they they came back to their home church in Antioch and then after some time they decided to go back to the cities that they had visited and Acts 15, 37 and 38 says this, Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And so it seems that evidently things had gotten tough for Mark, and he abandoned ship and decided he would go back to Jerusalem. So, 
This actually brings up uh, a pretty sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. And some of you I know uh, remember the story where they're trying to figure out what they can do and they can't come to terms with this. And so they separate. And Barnabas does take Mark and he goes to the island of Cyprus. Uh, Paul goes back the other way uh, to the mainland uh, and takes Silas. Uh, and of course, there's a couple of things we should remember uh, about this. One, uh, don't ever completely abandon a young man in ministry. Uh, he may struggle early on and God may strengthen him later and restore him. So, so we might need to be gracious to those who struggle early on in ministry. Uh, and secondly, uh, division, disagreement in ministry doesn't necessarily mean cancellation. Paul and Barnabas both went their separate ways, but they both were very successful in what they were doing. But what about Mark? Was he dependable? Did Paul make the right decision about Mark? Well, we know that Paul did not completely write Mark off because here are his words in Colossians 4.10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have re received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. So something has changed, hasn't it? Something has changed in that relationship. And then we have in the little book of Philemon, verses 23 and 24, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greeting to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. And so it seems that Mark had been restored to the Apostle Paul. And then finally we have Paul's last letter, 2 Timothy, we preached from this a few weeks ago. If you remember, I, I made some comments about this letter. This is Paul's last letter. He is awaiting execution. Every one of his ministry partners have abandoned him or they're working somewhere else. And so he writes this at the end of 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me. For ministry. Now, we don't have a lot of details there, but what we do know is that at the end of his life, as Paul is awaiting his execution, he asked Timothy, when you come, bring Mark with you. I want to see Mark. So, so that relationship had been restored, and not just on their own good terms, but Mark was a very faithful minister working alongside uh, Paul and others. Now, that's a little bit of the scriptural evidence that we have where Mark is mentioned. I want to share with you a little bit from church history. The early church actually has a, a good bit to say about uh, this man, Mark, and we'd be remiss if we ignored it. There's a reference to Mark by one, uh, Papias, Bishop of Hierapolis. And he's writing this around A.D. 90. Now, this is first century, so this is uh, not too long after the time that we think Mark wrote this book. And he said this, quote, Mark did nothing wrong in thus writing down single points as he remembered them. For to one thing he gave attention to leave out nothing of what he had heard and to make no false statements in them. Now, this testimony here that we have of Bishop Papias is important in this regard. We uh, 
probably in our day and, and even in they, their day would have had questions about uh, Mark's gospel. Why? Because Mark was not an apostle. Right? Uh, we hold to what they held to in the first century for something to be uh, considered uh, a scripture. It had to have been written by an apostle. And yet, this bishop here, Bishop Papias, tells us that uh, we can trust the work of this man named Mark, even though he was not an apostle, because what he wrote was the truth. Uh, we have other record from other church fathers, such as Irenaeus. And it was understood in the second century that Mark, though a bit younger, was a co-laborer in ministry with uh, Paul and later the apostle Peter. Uh, and he heard who knows how many of Peter's sermons, how many of Paul's sermons. And he wrote an account. Uh, we do actually have scriptural support to show him working with Peter. This is from 1 Peter 5.15. Uh, Peter writes, she who is at Babylon, now many think that that's code language for Rome because Peter did not want to disclose his location in this letter. She who is at Babylon, or possibly, probably Rome, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Peter, Peter's first epistle here attests to his relationship with Mark, that Mark was a, a co-laborer in the gospel with him. And then we have uh, many other records that we could reference. I'll share one more with you. This is from the pen of Clement of Alexandria. If you've studied early church history, the church fathers, you know that name. But in the second century, he wrote this, quote, When Peter had publicly preached the word at Rome and by the Spirit had proclaimed the gospel, that those present who were many exhorted Mark, who had followed Peter for a long time, to make a record of what was said, and that he did this and distributed it among those that asked him, end quote. Now, the point of all of that is simply to show that there is legitimacy to the relationship uh, from Scripture and from the historical record of Mark's relationship to the Apostle Paul, of his relationship to the Apostle Peter, Though he, he slipped for a, a short time, he was restored to the ministry and was considered a faithful minister. And because of his relationship, uh, especially with the Apostle Peter, who uh, was one of the original 12, Mark was given the task of writing an account that we have here as the gospel according to Mark. It's an authentic writing, an authentic record. It's the Word of God. It's been accepted by the church into the New Testament canon, and so we can rest assured that what we are reading and studying over the next several weeks and months, ever how long it takes us, is legitimate, that it's God's Word, and we can trust it. So that's Mark. But let's move on to our second question, and of course this is an obvious question. Who was Jesus? Who was Jesus? Well, Mark doesn't write a story about himself. In fact, it appears that there's no record of all uh, to Mark in this gospel account at all. And while uh, for good reason it's pointed out by many scholars that Mark 
uh, has a, 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 a good focus on the disciples and what it means to be a disciple. Uh, and that's very true. Uh, in fact, in Mark's account, the disciples are called almost immediately in chapter 1. You don't have that in any of the other accounts. But Mark, uh, this is what happens. And so it's clear that he is calling uh, on his readers to pay close attention to the, to the disciples and, and what they're hearing and how they're responding and what they are, are, are doing in response to what they see and hear from Jesus. And yet... That is not the primary focus of this book. Rather, he gives an account of the life of Jesus. And so who was Jesus, according to Mark? Well, we're going to take several weeks and months to answer this, right? We can't give you a complete answer to that today. It would take a long, long time. But there are a couple of important things that we need to recognize with regard to that question. And so we turn now to verse 1 here in chapter 1 of Mark's gospel where Mark calls Jesus the Christ. And I say the Christ because although we may think of Christ as this second name of Jesus, and in a sense it is, but really what we need to understand is that this, this is a special title that has been ascribed uh, to Jesus <clears throat> by Mark, and not only by Mark, but by all the gospel writers, and not just the gospel writers, but every uh, writer of every letter and book in the New Testament. There is a testimony in every book of the New Testament that Jesus is the Christ, except one, and it's Third John. That's just kind of a trivial matter. Of course, that doesn't mean it brings it up into doubt, does it? It means that, that it is surely a fact because every book except one attests to it. And Mark wants us to make sure that we understand that the Jesus of whom he writes is the Christ. He makes sure to include in his account this the story that I'm sure you remember when Jesus gets away at one point in his ministry with his disciples. He asked this question, who do people say that I am? You remember that story? And the disciples say, uh, well, some say you're John the Baptist and some say you're Elijah or one of the prophets. Interesting, isn't it? They think that Jesus is someone back from the dead. But then Jesus turns the question to them. And says, but who do you say that I am? And if you're a follower of Jesus, how you answer that question is very important, isn't it? And this was Peter's answer. You are the Christ. Now, why is that so important? Well, most literally, Christ means anointed one. The Old Testament equivalent to this word would have been Messiah. Now, in a general sense, that could have referred to anyone who was anointed, a prophet, a priest, a king. So in a general sense, you could have referred to a lot of people as Messiahs or as Christ. But that's typically not the way we use this word or, or the way we find this word used in Scripture. Rather, it speaks of a specific unique person 
who would come in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophets, one who would redeem God's people. The Christ was the long-expected king. This is acknowledged, and unfortunately it is said in mockery of Christ at the cross in Mark 15, 32. Uh, the crowd says, let the Christ, the king of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. And so you can see that mocking Jesus, they recognize that the Christ is the king of Israel. It was also understood that the Christ was one descended from David. Jesus is asking the Pharisees in Mark 12, 35. It says there, and as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Brother Mark read from Psalm 2 earlier, where it talked about this anointed one, who is the Christ, the son of David. So, this was understood by everyone that the Christ would be one descended from David. And Mark wants his readers to have no doubt that this is the one that he's talking about, that this Jesus is the Christ. Jesus himself, when questioned in his trial, answers in the affirmative. Mark sixteen sixty one. again, the high priest asks him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. But second, we must note also that Mark tells us in this first verse that Jesus is the Son of God. The Son of God. This title is of such importance that uh, Mark not only puts it here in this verse, first verse and is making the claim throughout his book but mark records two instances where god himself says this in mark 111 if you'll recall this is at the baptism of jesus it says and a voice came from heaven you are my beloved son you are my beloved son. That's God. That's not Mark making the claim. That is God from heaven speaking, making the claim. You are my beloved son. And then again in Mark 11, or rather chapter 9, verse 11, we often refer to this as the Mount of Transfiguration. And that verse reads, And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. And so Mark tells us, look, I'm making this claim, but I'm not making this claim just because I'm making it. I'm making it because there were those there who heard a voice from heaven speaking, saying, this is my beloved son. This is the claim of God himself. And so if Jesus is the son of God, God's son, what does that mean? He, like God the Father, is divine. There can be no doubt. And so this Jesus, of whom Mark writes, is the Christ, the Savior, the Deliverer, Israel's true and final great King, the one foretold of in the prophets, has come. He is the Anointed One. He is the Messiah, and He is the Son of God, God the Son, truly man and truly God. Well, we've looked at two questions so far. Who is Mark? 
And who is Jesus? But as I told you, we have three questions. And so I want to present to you one final question this morning. And it's this. It's a very important question. What is the gospel? What is the gospel? Mark says here in his first verse, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He calls his account a gospel. Well, what does that mean and why is it so important? Well, we need to understand that Mark is not simply writing a biography, is he? Now, if you're like me, a lot of you guys know I love history. I love reading biographies. I don't know how many I've read. I just gobble them up. I've read biographies of George Washington and Martin Luther and famous people, right? Biographies. What is a biography? Well, it comes from two words, bio, which means life, and graph, which means writing. And so a biography is when someone writes about the life of someone else. And it's usually a, a famous person, an important person. Well, Mark has not simply written a biography. In fact, Mark's account is very unusual. Uh, we notice as we get into Mark's gospel that he does not, uh, like John, include any information about the first 30 years of Jesus' life, does he? Nothing about the birth of Jesus. There were very amazing events about the birth of Jesus, right? Very unique things that took place according to the other uh, gospel accounts. Mark does not have any of that. Or where Jesus was born, what his childhood was like, where he grew up, none of that. In fact, he begins when Jesus is about 30 years old. That would have been the age in Jewish reckoning of when a man was uh, fully allowed to make decisions independent of his family, of his father. <clears throat> so Mark presents Jesus here with no facts about his birth, childhood, upbringing, none of that. It's not a typical biography, is it? If you pick up a biography of someone, you're going to get all those facts. Well, how could Mark eliminate all of that? And in fact, <clears throat> he just has 16 chapters. Mark's gospel is the shortest one by far. Well, we have to recognize that he has not set out to tell us everything about Jesus. Again, we couldn't do that, right? No one could have done that. The world could not have contained all the books. <coughs> but he says here in verse 1 that this is the beginning of the gospel. He refers to this account as gospel. Now, that's a word we use a lot around here, isn't it? But what does it mean? When I read uh, a biography of George Washington or, or Martin Luther... I do not find in there any, anything about gospel. Nothing in any biography is considered gospel because gospel literally means good news. And while it's really good that George Washington came along and Martin Luther came along, that's news. But is it good news? Well, what does this mean, gospel? Well, it, it literally means good news. We find this word used in the Old Testament, and the way that they used it there was that um, when there was a battle taking place off somewhere, uh, when 
the, 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 the people won, a messenger would be sent back and someone would be on the wall and they'd see the messenger coming and they'd say, hey, the messenger's coming. We have good news. And he'd come back and proclaim to everyone, we won the battle. We won the victory. And so it involves not just the news, but the way that the news is dispersed. It's a proclamation. It's a herald, okay? And this is exactly what Mark is announcing here at the very beginning of his gospel. I've got good news. That, that one that we've been waiting for for so long, God has acted, God has fulfilled his promises. And he's come, he sent the Messiah, his own son. Now, why is this good news? Well, Mark will tell us. As he works his way through this account of Jesus, we have someone here who does things no one else has ever done. Jesus heals people, and I'm not talking about just a, a pain here or there. We're talking about uh, paralytic, blind people who can see. People who were lame who could not walk, Jesus makes them walk. And more, people who are possessed by demons, Jesus casts out the demons. They're set free. This is a different person, isn't it? This is a, a man with unique powers. <laughs> he calms storms. He feeds massive crowds. He brings the dead back to life. You can't fake that, can you? He teaches and preaches like no other. Uh, no one has ever stood up to the Pharisees like Jesus. Now, all of that is good. But we would be selling the gospel short if that's all that we included, wouldn't we? And by the way, there's a lot of people today that do that. These uh, health and wealth gospel preachers will tell you all the good things that Jesus can do for you. He can make you better. He can make you richer. <laughs> but that's only a better life in this world. But that's a truncated gospel, friends. There must be more to our gospel. And we find it summarized in the second passage that we read. If you look there with me now, this is Mark 10, 45. And I hope you'll commit this verse to memory if you haven't all already. But Mark 10, 45 says this. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, uh, the first part of that verse, that sounds all well and good, doesn't it? We, we think of Jesus and we recognize that Jesus, this king who has come, uh, uh, kings are usually served. They're surrounded by servants who wait on them. Every beck and call, hey, I want this, I want that. And, and so we get the king whatever he wants. And Jesus says, no, I'm not that kind of king. I didn't come 
to be served. I came to serve. And, and so that's, that's great. But how? How did Jesus come to serve his people? Well, we have to continue with that second part of the verse. And to give his life as a ransom for many. What's a ransom? A ransom is simply a payment. Uh, uh, the word ransom involves a debt. There's a debt that's owed and there is a payment that is demanded. And we're fixing to figure out why this is really good news because there is a payment that is owed that nobody in this room can pay. Now, if you get in debt and you don't make the payments, what happens? It used to be really bad. Not so much anymore. <laughs> I don't know what's going on. Uh, it, it used to be a really bad thing. Way, way back, you used to get thrown in jail. You didn't pay your debts. But now the bills rack up and you get things in mail and, and, and then you have to pay late fees and on and on and it goes. And, and imagine a debt receiving something in the mail and you open it and read it and it's some astronomical figure and even on the bottom of the letter it says look you're never going to pay it you can't you don't have the ability if you were a billionaire imagine the richest man who's the richest man in the world now I lose track Imagine him getting a bill. This guy's a multi-billionaire. You know what his bill would look like? A gazillion trillion. He couldn't pay it. None of you, nor I, could ever pay it. And someone paid it brothers and sisters if that's good not good news i don't know what is <laughs> someone paid the ransom we don't know it anymore <laughs> isn't that good news <laughs> let's pray father how thankful we are for your word and we're thankful for the good news of the gospel and we're thankful for the power of the gospel that is mighty to save for everyone who believes. And how we pray today, Father, that you would give us a greater hope, a greater love for you, a greater love for this world, for, for one another because of the mighty transforming work of the gospel of grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.